Welcome back. Today we are talking about probably one of the richest parts of the Iliad. We are going to talk about Patroclus. Um, now, I'm recording this on March 23rd, so this is Monday of the week after spring break, before we have yet had our first Q&A session. Um, so, once again, I am like way in advance of the rest of the class. This is intentional, because I'm really planning something big for our research discussion, and that's going to take me some time, so I'll probably end up doing that next week. Um, but for now, I want to focus on sort of just everything that is going on in these chapters, because there's a lot. This is where things get super duper dense. Um, but to catch us up, um, a lot has happened back since back in book six of the Iliad, um, when we were talking about Hector and Troy and everything that was going on there. Um, but at the same time, nothing terribly unpredictable has happened. Um, the Greeks and the Trojans have been fighting this entire time. There's been a lot of back and forth. The gods have been engaged in various shenanigans at the same time, perhaps the best of which is when, like, Aphrodite and Hera work together to make Hera all sexy so she can seduce Zeus so the Greeks can win for a while. <laughs> um, this, it's the Iliad. These things happen. Um, but more importantly for our purposes, while there have been ups and downs for both the Greeks and Trojans during this war, um, over the last, like, ten books of the Iliad, for the most part, it has been a gradual story of the Greeks getting their butts handed to them. Um, all of the major Greek heroes that we've run into, Diomedes, Agamemnon, Odysseus, they have all been wounded and have been taken out of the fight at this point. The only big-time Greek hero who's still standing is Ajax. Um, like, big, scary Ajax, who's almost as big and scary and powerful as Achilles, but not quite. Um... Additionally, Little Ajax is hanging around, but nobody cares about Little Ajax because he's a wimp and he totally gets what's coming to him in the end. Um, so basically, the Trojans have been pushing them back and pushing them back and pushing them back, and at this point, it's gotten desperate. Um, the Greeks are now defending their ships. Like, the Trojans have pushed all the way back to the shore, and they are about to start setting fire to the ships when Iliad 16 starts. And if you remember, this is when Achilles said he'd show up again. Um, the whole point of him being mad, the whole, like, ultimatum he gave when he retired to his tent to sulk was when the Greeks are absolutely desperate, when the Trojans have pushed all the way back to my ships, then and only then will I don my armor and go out and everybody will be like, Oh, Achilles, we're so glad you're back. We were such fools for taking away your present. And he'll be like, Oh, yeah, I know it. But weirdly, that's not what happens at this point in time. Um... Like, Achilles has been sitting in his tent sulking for a good long while. At one point, Agamemnon did show up and was like, I'm so sorry, um, please come back and fight for us. And Achilles is like, no! Um, so we clearly have gotten kind of into the habit of sitting and sulking petulantly at this point. But again, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether Achilles is in the right or not. Like, he made this vow, he is going to hold through with it. There's something kind of honorable about that at the same time as there's something kind of dickish about that. Um, but we're about to see how this is going to play out. Because in Iliad 16, again, the army is at the ships, Hector is about to set one on fire, Ajax is defending them almost single-handedly at this point, and is just barely keeping them back, and Patroclus... Achilles' pal, decides to intervene. Now, we haven't seen a lot of Patroclus at this point, like in what we've read in class, or for that matter in the Iliad at large. 
Um, like, there are a couple scenes where he interacts with other characters back when Agamemnon claimed Briseis, like, Patroclus is actually the one who sort of hands him over, or hands her over, um, but again, no lines, no big role, he's kind of been sitting in the background, but now he suddenly becomes super important, and he, the first hint that Patroclus is super important, besides the fact that, again, everybody knows the story, everybody knows what's going to happen to Patroclus and what the deal is with Patroclus, You'll notice, even on the first page that Patroclus really shows up in Iliad 16, on page 153 um, in our textbook, if you look around line 20, uh, Homer actually addresses Patroclus. Um, Patroclus has come to Achilles, he's weeping, he's like, please, can we go fight now? Like, all the ships are going to get burned, the Greeks obviously need your help, and Achilles is like, hmm, not impressed. Um... And Patroclus says, Achilles, great as you are, don't be vengeful, they are dying out there. He has this long speech. But before the speech, you'll notice, like, we've seen a number of different, like, dialogue tags throughout the text. Like, oftentimes when two characters will speak, it'll be like, and Hector said to Andromache, and then Hector speaks. And then Andromache said to Hector, and Andromache speaks. Um... But you'll notice on the little dialogue tag here, it's real subtle, real easy to miss. There's only like two or three instances of this happening in this section. It says, and with a deep groan, you said to him, Patroclus. Um, Homer addresses Patroclus as though the entire poem is devoted to Patroclus. Um, every time, well, many of the times that Patroclus does something interesting in this section, Homer will say, and you, Patroclus, or like Patroclus, my hero. Um, there's a personal connection here. And we're going to see this again in the Odyssey. Um, it'll be weirder in the Odyssey, to be honest, who Homer picks as like his personal friend, the person he is addressing the poem to. Um, here, it's also kind of weird. Like, again, Patroclus is not a hugely major character. Um, he is more significant in how Achilles reacts to him. But you'll notice that Homer picks him out. Homer speaks to him. Homer directs this poem to him. And again, for all of the singing, the praises I've sung of Achilles and Hector, there's a case to be made that Patroclus is really the most heroic of the characters in the Iliad. Like, not a terribly strong case, because we don't see a lot of evidence of what Patroclus is fighting for, but we do see some evidence. And this first speech, this first speech to Achilles, like Achilles sitting intractable in his tent, not willing to go out and fight... Patroclus comes to him weeping because the Greeks are, you know, so hard-pressed. And Achilles is like, what's wrong? And again, this speech, Achilles, great as you are, don't be vengeful. They are dying out there, all of our best, or who used to be our best. They've all been hit and are lying, wounded in camp. Diomedes is out, and Odysseus, a good man with a spear. Even Agamemnon has taken a hit. Eurypylus, too, an arrow in his thigh. The medics are working on them right now, stitching up their wounds. But you are incurable, Achilles. God forbid I ever feel the spite you nurse in your heart. You and your damned honor. What good will it do, future generations, if you let us go down to this defeat in cold blood? Peleus was never your father, or Thetis your mother. No, the grey sea spat you out onto crags in the surf with an icy scab for a soul. What is it? If some secret your mother has learned from Zeus is holding you back, at least send me out. Let me lead a troop of Myrmidons, and light the way for our army, and let me wear your armor. If the Trojans think I am you, they'll back off and give the Greeks some breathing space, what little there is in war. Our rested men will turn them with a shout, and push them back from our ships to Troy. 
And notice the tag here as well. That was how Patroclus, like a child, begging for a toy, begged for death. Like, again, freaking haunting language. Um, this emphasis that, like, Patroclus is begging like a child for death. Um, because everyone knows that he's going to die. Everyone knows that this is the moment that Patroclus will not survive his endeavor to push the, push the Trojans back. So, but I also want to emphasize what Patroclus is fighting for here. Like, again, he is actively weeping for the sake of the Greeks. Like, they have lost all their soldiers or all of their heroes. Um, they're getting pushed back. Like, if the ships burn, it's over. Like, there's no escape for the Greeks. They do not get to go home. They will die on the fields of Ilion. It doesn't matter whether they beat the Trojans or not at that point. Um, furthermore, remember, the only reason the, the Greeks have survived this long so they've been raiding all of the local islands, all of the nearby cities. They need their ships to do that, which means if they lose their ships, they're not only going to die on these planes, they're also going to die on these planes, probably from starvation, which is not a fun way to go. So this is going to be it. Like, if the Trojans win here, it's over. The Trojan War is finished. It is a huge catastrophe, a giant loss. It's out. Um, and Patroclus knows this, and he condemns Achilles for it. Notice the language there. God forbid I ever feel the spite you nurse in your heart, you and your damned honor. Like, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. For all that I've been sort of on the fence about condemning Achilles for his honor, Patroclus has no such shame. Um, and Patroclus is his friend. I mean, notice later Achilles is going to like freaking weep. He is going to say, you know, I mourn for Patroclus more than I would have for my own father, for my own son. Um, Patroclus is probably the best friend Achilles has, and it takes a friend that good for um, Achilles to actually have his opinion change. It takes a friend that good to be able to lay down the law, to say something as honest as, God forbid I ever feel your spite, your damned honor. Um... Patroclus is totally calling Achilles out, and Achilles is willing to budge on this. Um, note the way that the plan works here as well. Um, Patroclus is going to put on Achilles' armor. He's going to pretend to be Achilles. And since everyone knows that Achilles is like the strongest warrior on the Greek side, the Trojans will retreat. Not because like Patroclus will be able to beat the crap out of them, though P.S. he does, but largely because they're all just freaking terrified of Achilles. They do not want him to rejoin the fight. This is the best thing that has happened to the Trojans. Achilles sitting in his tent petulantly. Um, this is not... This is an elaborate ruse. This is an attempt to trick the Trojans into retreating unnecessarily. Achilles doesn't have to actually show up. It just needs to seem like Achilles is going to show up. And now, Achilles initially pushes back against... Patroclus just a little bit? Ah, my noble friend, what a thing to say. No, I'm not in on any divine secret, nor has my mother told me anything from Zeus, but I take it hard when someone in power uses his authority to rob his equal and strip him of his honor. I take it hard. The girl the Greeks chose to be my prize after I demolished a walled city to get her, Lord Agamemnon, son of Atreus, just took from my hands as if I were some tramp. Remember, Achilles warrants this honor, Achilles deserves this honor, Achilles needs this honor because it's the only reason he went to this battle in the first place. He will die young, therefore honor is what makes that choice worthwhile. 
But we'll let that be. I never meant to hold my grudge forever, but I did say I would not relent from my anger until the noise of battle lapped at my own ship's hulls. So it's on your shoulders now. So Achilles gets real technical here. It's not the Greek ships that he's going to worry about. It's his own ships. He is protecting his own ships, which makes this kind of petty here. Like, the Trojans are right at the gate. They are absolutely starting to burn the Greek ships. We're going to see in a moment, like, Hector starts setting fire to the first ship despite Ajax's best efforts. So Achilles is really splitting hairs here. Like, who cares whether it's his particular ships or everybody else's ships? If anything, this just emphasizes all the more how Achilles is basically saying, fuck you, got mine. Like... I am out for one thing and one thing only. Achilles, his honor, his stuff, his prizes, his soldiers, his ships. Um, I will defend my ships. I will start fighting back when my ships are threatened. But until it is my ship that is going to be set on fire, I'm not interested. Peace out, guys. Good luck. Come cry to me later. Which doesn't seem to make sense. Like, this does not follow the original or the original intention behind Achilles' decision. Remember, the whole point was, when the Greeks come to me with their tails between their legs, saying, oh, Achilles, we need you to come back, then and only then will I come back. Well, they did that. They came with their tails between their legs, and they said, oh, Achilles, we really screwed up. And he's like, nope, not, not good enough. You were going to suffer even more before I come out and fight for you. And now, here it is, the other condition is fulfilled, they're at the ships, they're ready to start burning them, and Achilles is like, mm, nope, not my ships, don't care. Which makes it seem kind of petty. It makes it seem a little frivolous. It makes it seem like he is just being petulant, that he isn't defending his actual honor here. That his honor would more than be gratified at this point. The Greeks desperately need him to join the fight. They're willing to acknowledge him. Agamemnon has offered to give Briseis back at this point. But doesn't matter to Achilles. So what is the motivation then? Why does he sit in his tents? Exactly how much honor does he need here? Um, and notice the way that this pans out. Um, he says to Patroclus down at line 85, hit them hard, Patroclus, before they burn the ships and leave us stranded here. But before you go, listen carefully to every word I say. Win me my honor, my glory, and my honor from all the Greeks, and as their restitution, the girl Briseis and many other gifts. So once again, the plan here is Patroclus is going to wear his armor, Patroclus is going to go out in his stead. Patroclus is going to act like Achilles and win him his honor. Achilles isn't going to do it himself. Which, again, is weird. Especially because in a moment, he's going to say, any success you have against the Trojans will be at the expense of my honor. Like, what is Achilles' relationship to his honor at this point? What is... How does he win honor at this point? Can Patroclus actually win it to him, like it says in line 88? Or is his honor jeopardized by Patroclus doing awesome stuff, like he says in line 94? Like, this is not far off. This is six lines apart. So it's not entirely clear what, what Achilles wants from his honor. But notice also the warning that is presented between those two. But once you've driven the Trojans from the ships, you come back no matter how much Hera's thundering husband lets you win. He doesn't want Patroclus to get hurt. That's the important thing. Yeah, by all means, dress up in Achilles' armor, drive the Trojans back, win them a reprieve, 
prevent the ships from getting burned, great. Like he says in line 100, so once you have made some daylight for the ships, you come back where you belong. The others can fight it out on the plain. O Patroclus, I wish to Father Zeus and to Athena and, to, and Apollo that all of them, Greeks and Trojans alike, every last man on Troy's dusty plain were dead, and only you and I were left to rip Ilion down, stone by sacred stone. He cares deeply for Patroclus. He is the only person in the entire Trojan War that Achilles actually feels kinship with at this point. He loves him. Um, and there is definitely some speculation about how that love actually works. Um, like, for all intents and purposes, the Iliad does not make it explicit. Um, it seems like they're just, you know, brothers in arms two people raised together like boyhood friends who are in the same army who are fighting for the same cause who have you know been closely related all this time it's also entirely possible that they're doing it with each other um that achilles is in the position of um lover Erastes to patroclus being beloved aramanos it's not explicit it's not clear whether their relationship is sexual or not Often it is suggested that it is. This is pretty normal behavior. Um, like, every, a lot of the Greeks demonstrate that they have these relationships with, like, their underlings. and Or, uh, it's kind of ambiguous. Like, often it's the chariot driver who you have the relationship with, and Patroclus is Achilles' chariot driver at this point. Um, we'll see a similar thing with Hector and his chariot driver when Patroclus kills him. Um... So it's not clear exactly what the relationship is. What we should definitely take away, just from the way that Hector talks about in this about this and the couple of details we get, is that they are extremely close. Um, they are closer than just about any relationship between two men in this day and age. Period. Full stop. The end. Like we're talking about like guys who fought in the trenches of World War One together. Um, guys who you know like have never have relied on each other in ways that our society just does not allow for um like i think back to a foucault essay where he talks about how like male friendship is dead in the 1980s and he's like you want to talk about why homosexuality is such a big thing right now it's because male friendship is lost and there's no outlet for that anymore um, which is neither a criticism about homosexuality or, like, a condemnation of it. It's just a recognition that these two phenomena are very closely linked. Um, gay couples are have a relationship that we deem close in the same way that any lovers are close. But what Foucault, what Achilles, what the Greeks in general seem to be interested in is this relationship that transcends both deep friendship and sexuality um it is something that crosses those borders and yet there is no shame there it's again something that we've lost something that we that it's hard for us to identify with which is why like despite the fact that i don't have any claim to understand any of this i try to point to it all the same like when patroclus dies and achilles weeps it's important for us to notice that that's warranted justified their relationship is something that we don't have an analog for, that we do not have, you know, an explanation for. Our society has abandoned this way of looking at the world. And that's kind of a, a hard thing. Like, that's a loss. Their relationship is very deep. They 
The Greeks, the Romans, the ancients knew what friendship was in a way that we just don't. Um, but enough of me hand-waving and trying to understand things beyond my ken and pointing to stuff I clearly don't understand. Let's talk about how this actually pans out. So Patroclus puts on Achilles' armor, but importantly the text notes that he leaves behind Achilles' spear. It's this giant freaking pike that was given to him by Chiron, um, given to Peleus originally, and Achilles is the only person who can now wield it. So Patroclus does not bring the awesome spear. We will see the awesome spear again later when Achilles decides to go to war himself. So he gets out, he gets onto the chariot. All he has to do is show up in Achilles' armor, and Achilles and he like terrifies the, the Trojans into, into retreating. But you'll also notice that Achilles prays for him as he goes out. Um, like, there's a fairly long extended passage right around 2.30 to 2.50 um, where Achilles, like, goes back to his tent, brings out this chalice that he reserves for libations to Zeus. He, like, cleans it very carefully. He pours wine into it. And then he prays around line 240, Lord Zeus, god of Dodona, Pelasgian god who dwells afar in the snows of Dodona with your barefoot priests who sleep on the ground around your sacred oak. As you have heard my prayer before and did honor me and smite the Achaeans, so now too fulfill my prayer. As I wait in the muster of the ships and send my Patroclus into battle with my men, send forth glory with him. Make bold the heart in his breast, so that Hector will see that my comrade knows how to fight and win without me. And when he has driven the noise of battle away from our ships, may he come back to me, unharmed, with all his weapons and men. Zeus, in his wisdom, heard Achilles' prayer and granted half of it. Yes, Patroclus would drive the Trojans back from the ships, but he would not return from battle unharmed. Note again how we have a god only partially fulfilling this prayer. And a prayer, not only that, but from someone who he's just fulfilled his prayer. Like the whole Greeks getting wrecked, that was Achilles' prayer in the first place. Zeus granted that no question, no, you know, equivocation, no nothing. Thetis asks, Zeus gave. Um, but here Achilles prays again, and only half gets granted. Patroclus will fight everyone back, but Patroclus will not come back unharmed. He will also die. Now, Patroclus, he has a good day. Remember back when we talked about Diomedes in Achilles V? Diomedes has a real good day. He beats up some gods. He kills tons of Trojans. He just, like, mows people down left and right. Well, Patroclus has an even better day. Um, Patroclus's list of casualties is even more impressive than Diomedes. And yet you'll notice that Patroclus doesn't get a whole lot of, like, divine help on this one. We don't have, like, Athena giving him explicit instructions. We do not have a scene of, like, Athena empowering him. Um, if any god is behind Patroclus, it actually seems to be Ares, though we'll take that apart as we get to it. At any rate, all he has to do is show up as Achilles, and the Trojans start to retreat. Once he chases them, he just starts systematically taking people down. Like, Ajax and Patroclus both take off after Hector specifically, trying to, like, fight him, um... It even says on line 410, Patroclus steered them after Hector in whose back he longed to plant his spear. Like, remember, Hector is everything to the Trojans. He is the strongest soldier, he is the best strategist, he is the greatest of the leaders, he is the representative of, like, everything good that the, a Trojan soldier should be. He is the only bulwark against Troy's death. 
so everyone knows you take out Hector and it's over. Um, so they all try and chase after Hector. But it just isn't happening. Like, Hector is too far away. Hector frequently escapes their, their efforts. But that does not stop Patroclus from just mowing down Trojans like it's just wheat in a field. Importantly, though, I want to point to Sarpedon um, on lines f between lines 455 and 475. Um, Sarpedon is kind of an important hero from the Greek perspective, though there aren't a whole lot of important myths about him. Like, everybody would have recognized Sarpedon when this poem was told. Everyone knows that Patroclus is going to kill Sarpedon. That's an important detail here. But Sarpedon really doesn't have a whole lot to do in the Iliad besides show up against Patroclus and die. But notice how what this does illuminate for us. Um, Sarpedon is turning to face Patroclus. He steps down from his chariot and his bronze as Patroclus seeing him steps down from his. They're squaring off, ready to fight. And we get... A weird change. Instead, Homer decides to talk about Zeus at this moment. So if you look at line 469, Zeus watched with pity as the two heroes closed and said to his wife Hera, who is his sister too, Fate has it that Sarpedon, whom I love more than any man, is to be killed by Patroclus. Shall I take him out of battle while he still lives and set him down in the rich land of Lycia? Or shall I let him die under Patroclus's hands? And Hera, his lady, her eyes soft and wide, Son of Cronus, what a thing to say! A mortal man whose fate has long been fixed and you want to save him from rattling death? Do it! But don't expect all of us to approve. Listen to me. If you send Sarpedon home alive, you will have to expect other gods to do the same, and save their own sons, and there are many of them in this war around Priam's great city. Think of the resentment you will create. But if you love him and are filled with grief, let him fall in battle at Patroclus's hands. And when his soul and life have left him, send sleep and death to bear him away to Lycia, where his people will give him burial with mound and stone as befits the dead. The father of gods and men agreed, reluctantly, but shed drops of blood as rain upon the earth in honor of his own dear son, whom Patroclus was about to kill on Ilion's rich soil, far from his native land. Notice this interaction between Zeus and Hera, because it just goes by that quick, like one little dialogue bit for each one. Zeus wants to save Sarpedon, the most beloved of his sons at this point, the last remaining son of Zeus, his most beloved living person. He thinks to himself, he's supposed to die here. Fate has this written. But I could save him, because I'm Zeus. And Hera says no. Hera says if you do that, all hell is going to break loose, all the gods are going to save all of their favorites, and nothing, no order will reign. If you send Sarpedon home alive, you will have to expect other gods to do the same. But if you love him and are filled with grief, let him fall in battle at Patroclus's hands. Let him die if you love him. If you care, let him go. This is how it's supposed to go. And he does. But notice, again, Homer is emphasizing Zeus's weakness here. Zeus decides to make this decision, yes. Zeus could theoretically have changed fate, yes. But he won't. He can't in the sense that he knows that it is unwise to do so. Fate is something that even the gods are bound to here. Mortals, for sure. We have seen both Achilles and Hector bemoaning their respective fates. We have seen Achilles talking about how angry he is that he's going to die so young. We've seen Hector talking about how he knows in his bones that Troy will fall and he would rather be dead than see it happen. 
Both of these heroes know their fates. Achilles is fighting against it. Well, maybe I won't fight after all. Hector has accepted it. I will fight because it is my job. Here, even Zeus has to accept fate. It's even more powerful than him. So Sarpedon has to die. And Patroclus kills him. And we get a pretty gruesome detail as, like, Patroclus, like, pulls out his spear and takes out the lungs with it. Like, that's fun. Um... And then Patroclus continues on his killing spree. They have a couple conversations with Hector. There's, like, various Trojans trying to fight back. It does not work. Patroclus beats the Trojans back viciously all the way to the walls of Troy, which you'll remember Achilles said, don't do that. Like, just like we had Diomedes way back when, when Athena is like, hey, you can fight any of the gods, or don't fight any of the gods, except Aphrodite because she's a wimp. And Diomedes starts attacking Apollo anyway. Here we have Patroclus, warned explicitly by Achilles, do not go to the gates of Troy. At that point, you are taking honor for yourself, dishonoring me, and not to mention also being super, super endangered. Um, now Patroclus has already charged to the gates. Note that even Homer emphasizes this at line 720. Patroclus called to his horses and charioteer and pressed on after the Trojans and Lycaeans, forgetting everything Achilles had said and mindless of the black fates gathering above. Even then you might have escaped them, Patroclus. But Zeus's mind is stronger than men's, and Zeus now put fury in your heart. Once again, that's a really dense little passage. Notice the way that it's described. First, he forgets everything that Achilles has said. Mindless of the fact that fate is starting to congregate about him. The black fates gathering above. Even then you might have escaped them, but Zeus's mind is stronger than men's, and Zeus now put fury in your heart. Zeus is an agent of fate here. In the same way that Zeus is grumpy about fate with Sarpedon, Zeus is the one enforcing fate here by putting fury in Patroclus's heart. See, we talked a little bit last time about fate. We talked a little bit with the first Iliad lecture about rage. We're going to talk about both, together and separately, in this one. Because it's obvious from this passage and elsewhere that there's a connection here. Rage masters people. The same way that it caused Diomedes to attack Apollo, like, against his better judgment, so Patroclus is now bounding at the gates of Troy due to the rage that Zeus has put in his heart. Rage, fury, is now a vessel for fate. This is how Zeus makes Patroclus die, how Zeus causes Achilles to rejoin the battle, how all of the events of the Trojan War are ultimately going to come to pass. It's because fury, because rage, keeps fueling these heroes, causing them to do things that don't make any sense. And notice, too, that once again we have this you here. Even then, you might have escaped them, Homer says. He once again directs the poem at Patroclus at this moment. You can still save yourself, Patroclus, except for the fact that fury is taking you over. Now, notice, too, how this manifests. Here at line 730, Patroclus is here at the gates... And it says, but Phoebus Apollo had taken his stand on top of Troy's wall. Three times Patroclus reached the parapet, and three times Apollo's fingers flicked against the human shield and pushed him off. But when he came back a fourth time, like a spirit from beyond, Apollo's voice split the daylight in two. Get back, Patroclus. Back where you belong. Troy is fated to fall, but not to you. 
nor even to Achilles, a better man by far. Once again, we see rage taking over one of our characters, and that character doing something they're not supposed to do, and Apollo, specifically, being the one to enforce the will of fate and the gods. And notice, this is almost exactly the same kind of thing as we saw with Diomedes. Diomedes charges at Apollo trying to take Aeneas' body, and Apollo flicks him, like you flick someone on the nose. Again, we see that. Apollo's fingers flicked against the human shield and pushed him off three times, just like it was with Diomedes. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about Apollo here. Because I realize we've spent some time talking about Apollo. It's been a long while. Um, but now I think it's incredibly important to talk about what he represents here. Because this is the second time in a row that Homer has said, here is a mortal opposing his own fate, doing what is wrong, mastered by rage and opposing reason, and Apollo's the one that has to bring them back to their senses. Now, one of my favorite all-time myths about Apollo, um, which we did not get to read because it's recorded in some strange places, um, is the story of Apollo and Marcius. Um, now, Marcius is a satyr. Like, satyrs are not terribly well-known for being, you know, very smart. Um, and this particular satyr invents the panpipes, or, like, is really good at the panpipes, or something. It isn't actually Pan, it's, again, Marcius. And he has these fancy pipes, and he's like, okay, I can play these pipes really, really well. In fact, I think I can play these pipes better than Apollo plays his lyre. And Apollo, who, of course, is always attentive to these things, is like, really? You think that, do you? Well, let's us have a competition, then. And Marcius and Apollo both sit there with their instruments, and they are going to have a competition, judged by Athena or some of the other gods. And Apollo plays his lyre, and it's very, very beautiful, and Marcius plays his pipes, and it's also very, very beautiful, to the point that the judges actually decide that Marcius has played the better music. Apollo doesn't take kindly to this, however. So he says, all right then, if you think you're so clever, I can play my lyre upside down and he flips the lyre upside down and he plays and it is also very very beautiful and he's like okay marcius let's see you play your pipes upside down and marcius flips the pipes around and they won't even fit in his mouth so he's like <laughs> and the gods are like eh, yeah that was definitely inferior apollo you you successfully win this competition and apollo who does not like getting humiliated flays Marcius alive. He rips the skin off of his body, but does not let him die. Instead, you have Marcius, basically like an anatomical model of muscles and organs, standing in front of everyone. And Apollo points to Marcius and says this, this is mortality. This is what it means to be mortal. This is how vulnerable, how weak, a mortal is. This is a mortal with the skin stripped off, a mortal reduced to the beating heart, the blood vessels, the muscles, the digestive system, everything ugly and gross, everything fragile and weak, everything that keeps this mortal going. This, this is mortality. 
See, Apollo, in addition to being the god of civilization, the god of prophecy, the god of plague, the god of fate, the god of music, the god of the sun, the god of light, like, he's got all of these different hats that he wears, but he also very much takes the role of the god of fate in a way that even Hades doesn't. Apollo is the wall. Apollo constantly reminds us of our own mortality. Apollo is the god that is the most godlike. Apollo is everything that a mortal is not, and he reminds us of this consistently. He reminds Diomedes of this. You are to the mighty gods as a bug is to you. Here he tells Patroclus, this is not your fate. Troy is fated to fall, but not by you, not even Achilles, and Achilles is way better than you are. This is not your moment, Patroclus. Don't take on more than you can afford. And notice, it's Apollo who takes Patroclus down as well. After Patroclus does back off a little bit, Hector comes charging out, and the, he's fighting the Greeks again. Patroclus is fighting a few guys, and then... Patroclus unleashes himself and he's getting ready to like wreck everyone and then here at line 825 three times he charged into the Trojan ranks with the raw power of Ares yelling coldly he seems to be empowered by Ares here um, which is weird because Ares hasn't been fighting for the Greeks but who cares because Ares doesn't care about loyalty Ares just wants to kill things Patroclus is killing things so obviously Ares is on his side with the raw power of Ares yelling coldly and on each charge he killed nine men 27 people he kills at this moment. But when you made your fourth demonic charge, then did you feel it, Patroclus, out of the mist, your death coming to meet you? It was Apollo, whom you did not see in the thick of battle, standing behind you, and the flat of his hand found the space between your shoulder blades. The sky's blue disc went spinning in your eyes, and Achilles' helmet rang beneath the horse's hooves and rolled in the dust. No, that couldn't be right. Those handsome horsehair plumes grimed with blood. The gods would never let that happen to the helmet that had protected the head and graceful brow of divine Achilles. But the gods did let it happen. And Zeus would now give the helmet to Hector, whose own death was not far off. Nothing was left of Patroclus's heavy battle spear, but splintered wood. His tasseled shield and baldric fell to the ground, and Apollo, prince of the sky, split loose his breastplate, and he stood there, naked, astounded, his silvery limbs floating away until one of the Trojans slipped up behind him and put his spear through, a boy named Euphorbus, the best his age with a spear, mounted or on foot. He'd already distinguished himself in this war by knocking twenty warriors out of their cars the first time he went out for chariot lessons. It was this boy who took his chance at you, Patroclus, but instead of finishing you off, he pulled his spear out and ran back where he belonged, unwilling to face even an unarmed Patroclus, who staggered back toward his comrades, still alive, but overcome by the god's stroke and the spear. This is the beginning of the end for Patroclus. And notice that it's Apollo who's there to make it happen. Apollo, who flung him off the battlements, flicked his shield and forced him to return, reminded him, it's not you who takes down Troy, Patroclus. Here, Apollo totally and unfairly and completely partially takes Patroclus out. Hits him with the flat of his hand, his helmet flies off, his breastplate splits, he stands there freaking naked in the battlefield, completely unarmed, stunned, unable to defend himself, and some punk kid shows up, stabs him with a spear, and runs away because he's too scared that Patroclus is going to wreck him, even if he is unarmed and completely undefended. Patroclus deserves better. 
but it doesn't matter because this is Patroclus' fate. This is about forces bigger than Patroclus. This is about Achilles and about Troy and about Hector and about Zeus and about all of the powers of fate congregating. This is the black fate that was circling above his head that Patroclus had the chance to avoid, but Zeus kept the fury going in him. Zeus made him so enraged that Patroclus made bad calls, didn't turn back when it was the right time. It was rage that ultimately brought Patroclus to his death. And he even notices this. After Euphorbus stabs Patroclus, Hector takes his chance. Hector was watching this, and when he saw Patroclus withdrawing with a wound, he muscled his way through to him and rammed his spearhead into the pit of his belly and all the way through. Patroclus fell heavily. You could hear the Greeks wince. Hector deals the final blow. But Patroclus notes that's not him. It's not his kill. Hector starts, like, getting, you know, uppity about this. He brags, So, Patroclus, you thought you could ransack my city and ship our women back to Greece to be your slaves, you little fool. They are defended by me, by Hector, by my horses and my spear. I am the one, Troy's best, who keeps their doom at bay. But you, Patroclus, the vultures will eat you on this very spot. Your marvelous Achilles has done you no good at all. I can just see it. Him sitting in his tent and telling you as you left, don't bother coming back to the ships, Patroclus, until you have ripped Hector's heart out through his bloody shirt. That's what he said, isn't it? And you were stupid enough to listen. Now notice, there's two components to what Hector is saying here. First, he's right. Yes, it wasn't Patroclus who was going to defend, who was going to ransack Troy. They are defended by me, by Hector, by my horses and my spear. I am the one, Troy's best. He's right. But he's not right about the approach. He is, in fact, the strongest Trojan soldier. He is, in fact, the largest bulwark against the Greeks. But you don't go around saying that, because that's just arrogant, conceited. Yes, Hector is not wrong, but Hector is being wrong and talking about it this way. In the same way that Achilles is in fact the strongest soldier in the Greek army, but the minute that he decides that like he should get more honor and everyone should respect him better and I'm going to sit in my tent until everybody respects me, that's the wrong thing. Yes, it's kind of warranted. Yes, it's kind of true, but it doesn't matter because you've got to be a decent person about it. And Hector loses sight of that at this moment. Yeah, he's better than Patroclus. Showing off about it doesn't honor Hector, Patroclus, the gods, or anyone. And then he goes a step too far. Then he says, oh, I can just imagine Achilles telling you don't bother coming back until you've killed Hector. Achilles did not say that. Achilles specifically told Patroclus to avoid Hector. Achilles specifically told Patroclus to not attack the city, to not conquer Troy. Achilles was more concerned for his friend. Here, if we compare the two, Achilles is the better hero. Hector is not moving too, too far beyond what he should be doing, but he is moving a little bit too far. Achilles, on the other hand, had only Patroclus' best interests in mind, besides, you know, the fact that he didn't want to go to war, which admittedly does not make him great. And Patroclus calls Hector out on this. Brag while you can, Hector. Zeus and Apollo have given you an easy victory this time. If they hadn't knocked off my armor, I could have made mincemeat of twenty like you. It was fate, and Leto's son who killed me. Of men, Euphorbus. You came in third at best. And one more thing for you to think over. You're not going to live long. 
I see death standing at your shoulder, and you going down under the hands of Peleus's perfect son. Note the details here. Specifically, Pope Troclus points to not Hector as his killer, but Zeus and Apollo. Zeus, who brought the fate down on Patroclus, who brought the rage that fueled him even when he should have stopped. Apollo, who hit him in the back and caused his armor to fell off. Of men, Euphorbus is the one who is the closest to actually killing Patroclus. Hector just shows up for the finishing blow. He coup de gras Patroclus when Patroclus is already dead. Fate has already spoken. Hector just shows up to, you know, claim the honor. Which he does. They'll fight over Achilles' armor. Patroclus' body will successfully be rescued by the Greeks. We'll get to that. But the armor, Hector will strip. And keep that in mind. Remember when we talked about Diomedes, exchanging armor is your trophy. That's how you show, I have beaten this person. Well, Hector claims Achilles' armor. Remember, Patroclus goes out wearing Achilles' armor. Hector has not defeated Achilles, and yet he wears Achilles' armor from here on out. When Achilles and Hector square off, it'll be Achilles winning his armor back. Because Hector doesn't deserve it. Hector has gone a step too far here. And you'll notice his response to Patroclus' condemnation, this statement, I see death standing at your shoulder. He says, why prophesy my death, Patroclus? Who knows? Achilles, son of Thetis, may go down first under my spear. Now we're going to see this from Hector a couple times. We're going to see him think that he can probably take Achilles. He is very wrong, as we will see as soon as they actually square off. But nonetheless, it's this weird blind spot. Like, everybody knows that Hector is going to get killed by Achilles. I mean, there is so much foreshadowing in Andromache's speech to him about how, like, Achilles has taken everyone I ever loved, he killed my dad, and he killed my seven brothers, all in the space of a 24-hour period. Gee, I hope he doesn't kill you too, Hector. And meanwhile, everybody in the Greek camp is aware of it. Like, Achilles and Thetis and Zeus have been talking about how he's going to kill Hector and die basically this entire story. But notice, too, that Hector, Hector has made a couple of big mistakes at this point. And this isn't even the first one. The first one is way back in line 745. It says, and you would probably have missed it, like, this will become way more important later. But notice, Hector had halted his horses at the western gate and was deciding whether to drive back into battle or call for a retreat to within the walls. Hector is thinking about backing up. Patroclus is showing way more spirit than he expected. He is definitely beating the crap out of people. Like, this is right after Patroclus has been knocked off the parapet by Apollo. Patroclus, like, retreats just a little bit. And Hector's like, you know, we could either pursue him, like, chase him back onto the field and see if we can win. Or we can just call it for today and defend our walls. And while he's thinking about this... While he pondered this, Phoebus Apollo came up to him in the guise of Aeseus. This man was Hector's uncle on his mother's side, and Apollo looked just like him as he spoke. Why are you out of action, Hector? It's not right. If I were as much stronger than you as I am weaker, you'd pay dearly for withdrawing from battle. Get in that chariot and go after Patroclus. Who knows? Apollo may give you the glory. So this is real tricksy. Notice, Hector doesn't make the call here. Apollo convinces him. Apollo deceives him. Aeseus is not the one who is speaking. And Hector does, in fact, as Apollo commands, go chasing after Patroclus, which is why he takes Patroclus' life, which is why Achilles gets back into the battle, which is why Hector will ultimately die. 
this is ultimately Hector's call. Hector, under the influence of Apollo, once again. And notice whose side is Apollo playing on here? Like, yes, he has been fighting off these Greek heroes from the beginning. It is clear that he has been fighting for the Trojans. The text has been unequivocal about that. And yet here, where he says, hey, time to chase after Patroclus, make sure you get him. He is, in fact, getting a temporary victory for the Trojans. He is, in fact, spurring them on, causing Hector to gain glory by killing Patroclus. But he does so, and this is the moment that Hector is going to regret later in the text. This is the moment when Hector is like, I should have pulled back then. If I had, my troops would still be alive, and I would not be at the threat of dying either. This is the moment. And it's kind of not in Hector's control. Once again, fate, Apollo, takes over. Once again, mortal lives are being tinkered with in ways that they cannot anticipate or comprehend. Fate and Leto's son are who killed Patroclus. Hector is third at best. At the end of the day, all of this is engineered. All of this is determined by fate. And of course, the real reason why we have this chapter, the real reason why Patroclus charges into battle and has his good day, but then ultimately gets killed by Hector, is all to get Achilles moving. So we skip book 17, like Lombardo doesn't even bother to include it. Again, there's a huge fight over the corpse of Patroclus. You'll remember back when Diomedes is fighting over the corpse of Achilles. Again, he wants the armor, but he also wants to like steal the corpse and then they can like defile it because they all hate Aeneas. Um, here we have the same thing. The Greeks and the Trojans are now fighting over the d dead body of Patroclus. If the Trojans win, like Hector specifically wants to cut off Patroclus's dead head and stick it on a pike, which will just antagonize Achilles all the more and demoralize the Greeks, or so he thinks, rather than, you know, galvanizing them like it ultimately turns out to be, while the Greeks just want to give him a proper burial. And notice that the Greeks ultimately win this battle because of Achilles. Um, after both Achilles and Thetis spend quite a significant time mourning. Achilles because Patroclus is dead. Thetis because she knows that now that Patroclus is dead, Achilles is bound to fight for his honor. Um, that Achilles is definitely condemning himself to death at this point. Like, fate has them all in their hands, which we'll come back to. When, ultimately, they win Patroclus' body, it's because Achilles just shows up out of the blue. He doesn't even have any armor. Hector is wearing his armor at this point. And Achilles just stands up, shouts, and every time that he shouts, the Trojans retreat. They completely back off, and they just swipe Patroclus' body and bring it to, to safety. Um... That's all it takes from Achilles. Like, remember how Patroclus just puts on his armor and shows up and the Trojans retreat? Now here's Achilles completely unarmored, and everyone's like, crap, we didn't kill Achilles? Let's get out of here, because now he's really mad. Um, which is a sensible response. Like, Achilles is absolutely going to wreck everyone in just a moment, because he first needs some armor. But I also do want to point out this issue of the morning. The fact that, on the one hand, Achilles just weeps 
weeps like crazy, weeps in a way that is just, again, unfathomable to us in our current society. A mist of black grief enveloped Achilles. He scooped up fistfuls of sunburnt dust and poured it on his head, fouling his beautiful face. Black ash grimed his fine-spun cloak as he stretched his huge body out in the dust and lay there, tearing out his hair with his hands. The women, whom Achilles and Patroclus had taken in raids, ran shrieking out of the tent to be with Achilles, and they beat their breasts until their knees gave out beneath them. Antilochus, sobbing himself, stayed with Achilles and held his hands. He was groaning from the depths of his soul for fear he would lay open his own throat with steel. Like, Antilochus shows up to keep Achilles from killing himself from grief. And everyone in the Greek camp is grieving over Patroclus. When, in fact, uh, Agamemnon returns Briseis in Book 19, the first thing Briseis does is mourn the body of Patroclus. Like, she falls on the corpse and weeps over him. Um, This is a huge loss for Achilles and everyone around him. And not just because Patroclus was a good fighter. Like, Patroclus is a good fighter. It's obvious. He just took out, like, 50 Trojans in one push. But more importantly, he's everybody's friend. They care about him, and he cared about them. Remember, the reason why Patroclus tried to get Achilles to fight in the first place, the reason why Patroclus went out, asked, begged for his death, is that he was concerned for the Greeks. He had their interests in mind. He did the right thing he fought for them he fought for the people he cared about until you know he got carried away by rage and wrecked by zeus apollo euphorbus etc um patroclus fought for the good reasons the way that hector is supposed to be fighting and kind of slipped up a little bit now notice that thetis Thetis tries to convince Achilles out of this. Child, why are you crying? What pain has come to your heart? Speak, don't hide it. Zeus has granted your prayer. The Greeks have all been beaten back to their ships and suffered horribly. They can't do without you. Remember, that was the condition. And he responds, Mother Zeus may have done all this for me, but how can I rejoice? My friend is dead. Patroclus, my dearest friend of all. I loved him and I killed him. And the armor... Hector cut him down and took off his body, the heavy, splendid armor, beautiful to see that the gods gave to Peleus as a gift on the day they put you to bed with a mortal. Notice the armor also has a history here. This is the armor the gods gave Peleus. This is the dowry for Thetis. You should have stayed with the saltwater women, and Peleus should have married a mortal. But now it was also you would suffer pain for your ravaged son you will never again welcome me home since i no longer have the will to remain alive among men not unless hector loses his life on the point of my spear and pays for despoiling menoetius's son achilles resolve has shifted right at this moment i no longer have the will to remain alive among men unless hector loses his life on the point of my spear and pays for despoiling Menoetius' son. Where Achilles was once fighting for his honor, where he was once enraged and inactive, now he is even more deeply enraged. But it is a rage that spurs him on to action. He doesn't want to live anymore. He does not want a long life. That is no longer a positive choice for him. Once he wa- the choice was between either honor or life. Either Achilles is going to have a long life and no honor, or a short life and lots of honor. Now we find a third option. There is vengeance. A just vengeance. 
vengeance for his friend who he has lost. And both of the other options are now gone. Like, they're not even options anymore for Achilles. He doesn't want to be alive anymore now that Patroclus is dead. There's no point in having a long life. So that's no longer a desirable state of affairs, and Achilles will no longer see any point to staying in his tent. On the flip side, going around fighting for his own honor, well, he screwed that up royally. He had the choice to go back. He would have fulfilled his honor if he had showed up, if he had gone to war instead of Patroclus. But now Patroclus is dead. What matter is honor? Why, why would he fight for himself now when he has failed the person who matters most to him? What honor is valuable if the only person he cared about when he says explicitly, I wish it was just you and I, Patroclus, sitting on the empty field of Ilion, that everyone else is dead and we tore down the walls piece by piece, brick by brick. If he doesn't care what anyone else thinks of him, then what value is honor? Patroclus is dead. Patroclus is the only one he cared to impress. So there's no point in living and there's no point in honor. There's only vengeance. And notice he has this real philosophical moment there. Thetis in tears said to him, I won't have you with me for long, my child. If you say such things, Hector's death means yours. Thetis reminds him, I don't want you to die. The whole point, the whole reason why I'm behind this, I like the idea of you sitting in your tent. Why don't you stay there? Why don't you just hold out? Stay with me. Remember, I am a goddess. I love you. I don't want you to die. I can't believe I married a mortal. This suffering is incredible. And Achilles responds, then let me die now. I don't care if I die. I have to kill Hector. I'm bound to it. I was no help to him when he was killed out there. He died far from home, and he needed me to protect him. But now, since I'm not going home, and wasn't a light for Patroclus or any of the rest of my friends who have been beaten by Hector, but just squatted by my ships, a dead weight on the earth, I stand alone in the whole Greek army when it comes to war, though some do speak better. I wish all strife could stop among gods and among men, and anger too. It sends sensible men into fits of temper. It drifts down our throats sweeter than honey and mushrooms up in our bellies like smoke. Yes, the warlord Agamemnon angered me, but we'll let that be, no matter how it hurts, and conquer our pride, because we must. But I'm going now to find the man who destroyed my beloved, Hector. Achilles is willing to die now. He doesn't have any point in going forward and living. Thetis will mourn him, sure, and she does. But now, Achilles doesn't want to be alive. He failed Patroclus. He sent him to his death. He said earlier, I murdered him. He takes responsibility for Patroclus's death. He is a killer. He sat, squatting by his ships, a dead weight on the earth while the Greek army failed. He realizes what a huge mistake that was. Why does Achilles even live, he asks. What's the point of him if he's not willing to do the one thing that he can do, namely stand up, fight, and protect his friends? And notice this moment of reflection. I wish all strife could stop among gods and among men. And anger too. It sends sensible men into fits of temper. It drips down our throats sweeter than honey and mushrooms up in our bellies like smoke. This is his thesis on rage. This is Homer's big statement. On the one hand, rage is something valuable. 
It is something that causes Diomedes and Patroclus and later Achilles and Hector to do great heroic deeds, to kill tons of enemies and protect their friends and keep their livelihoods strong and protect their homelands and do great things. But notice the way he describes it. It sends sensible men into fits of temper. It drips down our throats sweeter than honey and mushrooms up in our bellies like smoke. Yes, the warlord Agamemnon angered me, but we'll let that be no matter how it hurts and conquer our pride because we must. Just like Patroclus, who charged at Apollo, who charged at Hector, who got himself killed when he was taken over by rage, Achilles realizes he's done the same mistake. Agamemnon pissed him off so much that he became blind, irrational, and as a result, Patroclus is dead. It's his rage that killed him. It turned a sensible man into a raging animal. Rage has its uses, its value. It also destroys people. And notice, the text does emphasize both. Like, not long after this, once Hephaestus' fancy new armor is delivered to Achilles, in Iliad 19, around line 20, it says, Achilles, when he saw it, felt his rage seep deeper into his bones. Which is interesting. Because, like, in one page, we're going to have Agamemnon finally return Briseis to Achilles, his honor is restored, all is made well, like Achilles is back in everybody's good graces, and everybody's ready for Achilles to go out there, take out Hector, and turn the tide of this war once and for all. And when Agamemnon shows up, Achilles announces, I hereby end my anger. There is no need for me to rage relentlessly. But let's move quickly now to get our troops back into battle so I can confront the Trojans and test their will to bivouac among our ships. They will more likely be thankful to rest their knees at day's end if any of them get out of this alive. He spoke, and the Greeks cheered. Peleus's great son had renounced his rage. He stops being angry. He renounces his rage. The strife between him and Agamemnon is done. But that's not it for the rage in Achilles. If anything, as we said, it seeped deeper into his bones. The rage has become part of him. It has become stronger, or rather it has become more entrenched. It's not this burning, mushrooming smoke that takes over his senses. Now he and his rage are one. They are united in a common cause. Both his reason and his temper agree that Achilles' one sole purpose is to kill Hector, to avenge his friend, to make right the mistake that Achilles made by letting Patroclus go on out in the first place, the mistake that Achilles started by taking his fight with Agamemnon and going and sulking in his tent this whole time. All of that is on Achilles, and Achilles is going to make it right by taking Hector down and changing the tide of this war single-handedly. He will avenge Patroclus, he will avenge the Greeks who have fallen, he will fight and take back the victories that he should have been winning all along. He will clear the Trojan road for the Greeks in the way that he should have been doing and didn't. The rage seeps deeper into his bones. Now, he doesn't do this ignorant of his fate. He recognizes this. That speech that we were at originally, the one where he says that 
rage sends sensible men into fits of temper and drips down our throats sweeter than honey, mushrooms up in our bellies like smoke. Just after that, he says, as for my own fate, I'll accept it. Whenever it pleases Zeus and the other immortal gods to send it, not even Heracles could escape his doom. He was dearest of all to Lord Zeus, but fate and Hera's hard anger destroyed him. If it is true that I have a fate like his, then I too will lie down in death. But now to win glory and make some Trojan woman or deep-breasted Dardanian matron wipe the tears from her soft cheeks, make her sob and groan, let them feel how long I've been out of the war. Don't try out of love to stop me. I won't listen. Remember how I emphasized with Hector that one of the things that defines his heroism is the fact that he has accepted his fate. He knows Troy is going to fall. He knows that he is going to die. Andromache is as suspicious of him as he is. But importantly, Hector does it anyway, because he is still the strongest soldier the Trojans have got. It still is the only honorable course of action to defend his home, his soldiers, his homeland, his family, everything. Well, now Achilles accepts his fate as well. Eyes for my own fate, I'll accept it whenever it pleases Zeus and the other immortal gods to send it. He doesn't have a reason to fight against his fate anymore. He doesn't have a reason to decide to keep on living. Patroclus is dead. His job is to kill Hector. That's all there is. And we get one final reminder, just to sort of drive this home. At the very end of Iliad 19, he is yoking up his horses after getting all armed and is ready to charge out into the battle and wreck some Trojans. And we stop, and his horse talks to him. Xanthus and Balius, Podarge's famous colt, see that you bring your charioteer back safe this time when we have had enough of war and not leave him for dead as you left Patroclus. Which is kind of bullshit, because Xanthus was actually like dispatched by Patroclus. Patroclus told him to leave. And from beneath the yoke, Xanthus spoke back, hooves shimmering, his head bowed so low that his mane swept the ground, as Hera, the white-armed goddess, gave him a voice. This time we will save you, mighty Achilles. This time. But your hour is near. We are not to blame, but a great god and strong fate. Nor was it slowness or slackness on our part that allowed the Trojans to despoil Patroclus. No, the best of gods, fair-haired Leto's son, killed him in the front lines and gave Hector the glory. As for us, we could outrun the west wind, which men say is the swiftest, but it is your destiny to be overpowered by a mortal and a god. Notice again the emphasis here. It was Apollo who killed Patroclus. It was fate who killed Patroclus. It was his time. Zeus decreed it. Fate made it happen. And even here, as Xanthus slash Hera is telling Achilles that the same fate awaits you, you are also going to be defeated by a god and a mortal. Your destiny is coming for you. Even then, she gets cut off by the Furies, of all people. Xanthus said this, then the Furies stopped his voice, and Achilles, greatly troubled, answered him, I don't need you to prophesy my death, Xanthus. I know in my bones I will die here, far from my mother and father. Still, I won't stop until I have made the Trojans sick of war. Note, first, that it's the Furies who shut Hera up. This is a violation. This is not something you're supposed to do. You don't get to have conversations with heroes by way of their horses. There are only so many secrets that Achilles is supposed to be privy to, and the Furies, as always, are the ones who stop it. And notice that the Furies also overpower Hera here, like one of the immortal gods, one of the big 14, the one who is married to Zeus, filled with power and totally unstoppable when she wants to like drive Heracles to death. The Furies take her out. 
because this is inappropriate. But Achilles, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter what Hera tells him. I don't need you to prophesy my death. I know in my bones I will die here, far from my father and mother. And still, I won't stop until I've made the Trojans sick of war. That is his sole purpose right now. That is all he wants. No honor, no life. These are worthless. Only vengeance. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, which is hugely significant, and we kind of just skipped over it, because there's, that's like a whole conversation in its own right, is the actual armor that Achilles gets from Hephaestus. Um, so, obviously, since Hector stole Achilles' armor off Patroclus' body, because it all got, like, knocked off when Apollo hit him in the back, Hector is now wearing Patroclus' slash Achilles' armor. Um, Hector, like, again, Achilles' armor is awesome. It was a gift from the gods to Peleus for marrying Thetis. Um, so it's way better than anything that Hector has himself. Um, and Hector, remember, doesn't even, like, deserve that insofar as he defeated Patroclus. Like, Patroclus specifically says, you came third, if anything, after Apollo, after Euphorbus. Um, Apollo doesn't, eat, like, Hector can't even win the body because Apollo knocked off the armor beforehand. Like, all Hector has to do is pick up the fallen armor. Um, he gets the glory, but it is undeserved in this case. If anything, it's Euphorbus who should be wearing all the fancy armor of Achilles. Um, but notice, like, even here it says Apollo gave him the glory. So, at any rate, Achilles doesn't have armor, is what this comes down to. Like, the awesome armor he should have been wearing, Patroclus had been wearing, and as a result, Hector ends up with it. So Achilles is unarmed. Like, when he chases the Trojans out and saves Patroclus' body, he goes out completely without armor. So he needs new armor. So he sends Thetis, and Thetis goes to Hephaestus, and Hephaestus forges new armor for Achilles. And this is some freaking armor. Like, it is emphasized here that this is finer armor than any mortal to this point has ever worn full stop. Like, it is described in great detail here. Specifically the shield of Achilles. And remember, Hephaestus himself is crafting this, and it's some of the best stuff he has ever made. Now... There's a lot going on with the shield, like more than I could probably spend an entire lecture talking about. Um, but I do want to emphasize a couple of key points. First off, like big picture, there seems to be sort of three major images on the shield. First off, there are two cities, and then there's like the fields between them. And in the first city, we have a happy city. It's a city where a bunch of marriages are taking place and there's like all these people who are like getting ready for their wedding and there's a bunch of trade going on. There's like all these like people exchanging money and exchanging goods. Um, there's like a quarrel that shows up over a murder um, and there's like some justice that needs to be executed. But this is like a city in peacetime. Like, yes, there is crime, but it's not like bad, bad crime. It's just normal, everyday sorts of crime in addition to all of these marriages and other cool things happening that are typically happening. Like, this is a well-ordered city doing justice, doing, you know, peacetime activities, weddings, life as usual. Um, in the other city, it's emphasized that there are two armies camped around the city. 
There's a siege going on, like the city is caught in the middle of these two fighting forces, much like Troy is currently caught in the middle of these two armies. Um, the leaders are at odds, they're deciding what to do about it, and you can see the gods on the shield as well. Athena and Ares are both sort of hovering over the scene, as well as Hate and Angel of Death and so on. Um, there's a battle taking place. They fight, they fight, they're like stripping each other's bodies of armor, they're doing all the things that describe G uh, Greek combat. And then there are the fields, and you have like people running their plows up and down the hedgerows. Um, you have like land section for a king where a bunch of people are working like cutting grain, filling up grapes and doing all this stuff. There are cattle and there are sheep and there are all these livestock hanging around. Um, and around all of this is the ocean. Um, there's like the ocean is the rim of the shield and much the way that the Greeks thought that like all of the earth was surrounded by one large ocean, which is why, again, Poseidon can do earthquakes because the entire land is floating all the time. Um, what seems to be emphasized here is that this is everything. Like the entire Greek world is depicted on this shield. Every aspect of Greek life is depicted here. And I don't know how Hephaestus does this. Like, this is practically miraculous. We've got to be talking about, like, nearly microscopic detail on this shield, which is itself large, but, like, still, considering how many crazy things are going on in this shield, it's like, how do you fit that on a shield that's even, like, six feet long? Um, it's huge and very, very detailed. And it's incredibly strong. Like, they're wrought of gold and tin, which aren't themselves terribly strong uh, metals, but apparently this sucker is just going to, like, defend Achilles like crazy. You've seen shields get, like, shorn apart by spears. Again, bronze, iron, these things... Like, bronze does not necessarily stand up to blows from other bronze weapons or other iron weapons. So occasionally, like, the shield just, like, gets cut through. Like, Diomedes' shield will hold up in some cases and shear through in others. Um, this shield, miraculously, will not get shorn through, even though the metal doesn't seem to justify it. But notice, too, like, this is his shield. This is what Achilles should have been fighting for the entire time, and it's what's going to protect him now. Um, Achilles forgot what he was fighting for. Achilles forgot that it's for the safety of his friends, for his compatriots, for his fellow soldiers, for his homeland that he is fighting in, in the Iliad. He forgot all of that. All he remembered was, eh, my honor has been offended, now I'm going to sit this out until somebody restores it to me. By contrast, Hector remembers all this stuff. This is what he's been fighting for the whole time. Like, he knows he's going to die. He knows that things are going to go bad for Troy, and yet he will fight anyway, because that's what you do. That's the only cause worth fighting for. But weirdly, it's going to be that same thing that is on Achilles' shield. It will defend Achilles. It will protect him. It is this that keeps him going. And I don't exactly know how to read the symbolism on this one. To be perfectly honest, like, lots of people have discussed the shield. Lots of people are like, this is what it means, or this is what it means, and nobody agrees. But it's important, first, that it does protect Achilles. And it is important, second, that it seems to depict, like, everything that Achilles should be fighting for in the first place. I suspect that this just ties again into this subject of fate. That while, you know... 
while all of these mortals and all of these gods are bound by their fate zeus cannot save sarpedon because he will upset the balance and all the gods will end up in chaos um, Hector cannot avoid his fate, Achilles cannot avoid his fate, Patroclus is enraged and cannot avoid his own fate. Fate has this negative quality most of the time. When many of these heroes talk about their fate, it is practically synonymous with their death. I am going to meet my destiny, I am going to die. I am never going to leave the plains of Ilium, it is my fate. If anything, I suspect that the indication here is that fate also protects fate can also defend fate is positive as well and the fact of the matter is everything that is that is depicted on this shield is things going according to fate weddings funerals babies being born people paying their taxes justice being administrated um, wars being fought over land and territory kings demanding tribute uh, fields being plowed and sown and reaped this is just the normal cycle of life this is the basic what is fate fate is the human experience fate is everything that people do and as long as achilles fights for that as long as achilles remembers what it is that he is fighting for he will be protected not necessarily from death not necessarily will it stop him from dying, but it will make what he does worthwhile. It will mean that the honor that he once sought, the renown, that will remain. See, nobody remembers the name of heroes who didn't fight and die for heroic things. Nobody remembers the, the name of tyrants who do evil things, or at least they don't remember them except in infamy. If we remember Achilles, if we remember him positively, it's going to be because he remembered all of the good things and fought for them. If we remember Achilles positively, if we talk about him as a hero, it's going to be because of all of the normal things that he fought and died for. And it'll be in our normal things that we remember him. This shield is not going to protect him from death but it will protect him from obscurity. As long as people keep having marriages, as long as they keep having justice, as long as they keep having wars, we will keep telling the story of the Iliad. And as long as we keep telling the story of the Iliad, Achilles will have his honor, his fame. He will not, in truth, die. Again, pure speculation on my part. Other people are going to disagree with me. But I think that's the best interpretation I can come up with, at least, um, as crazy as it may sound. So at any rate, I am going to stop here. Uh, we definitely are going to finish the Iliad for next time, so be sure to read everything from 20 and 21 onward. Um, we will talk about the final death of Hector and everything that's going on with Achilles there and the war between them. There's a lot to go over there as well. Um... And I'll probably record that later this afternoon, so it'll be up shortly. Um, you'll probably be able to listen to both of these back-to-back -back if you are so inclined to. But in the meantime, um, let me again, as always, let me know if there are any problems with the lectures or other stuff. At this point, I imagine you're kind of in the groove. If not, find a groove, please. Again, I do not want you to become disconnected and lost uh, in this, this mad 
online nonsense. Um, so anyway, I will talk to you soon, one way or the other, whatever time this might be. Um, and I hope all goes well.